Welcome to Cart Overflow, the no-fluff podcast for e-commerce marketers. I'm your host today, Gen Furukawa, and today I spoke with Chase Diamond, the co-founder of Boundless Labs, which is a top email marketing agency. What I admire about Chase is he's so laser-focused just on e-commerce email. And at Boundless, in just a few years, he's helped drive tens of millions of dollars in revenue attributable to his email program. In this conversation, he shares a lot about how he creates a strategy and then executes on that to drive 20 to 30% of revenue for his clients via email. So we go deep in the weeds on things like email segmentation, the post-purchase sequences to drive more repeat purchases, and then how he, he went from zero to 500,000 email subscribers in 10 months, which is a really admirable feat, and it's awesome because he went really tactical step-by-step step in explaining exactly how he achieved that. Chase is very active on Twitter, so I highly recommend that you give him a follow. He's constantly sharing a lot, and I'm very grateful that he shared a lot in this conversation. So with that said, let's get right into it. All right. Everybody, thanks so much for joining. Today we have Chase Diamond, founder of Boundless Labs and email marketing nerd. Chase, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks, man. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Today I wanted to talk to you about what your what your forte is specifically. I think within growth marketing, you are uh, an expert at email marketing specifically for e-commerce. And I wanted to start with one of the things that you shared with that I found a, lo- a lot of value in, and that's going back to 2017 and your experience of growing from zero to 500,000 email subscribers in the course of 10 months. And at first, can you just maybe like walk us through some of the, the tactical action items that you took to get there? Yeah, so that was for an email travel series called The Discoverer. It was much like the hustle, the scam and morning brew, where it was a strong editorial stance in this case on travel versus, you know, business or anything else. And basically what we did is we really leveraged a lot of non-paid channels. So we, we started off sending one email per week. It was a beautiful kind of email travel series that featured a different destination from around the world, either a place that was well known, like, you know, New York or a place that was off the beaten path, maybe somewhere really cool, like in Costa Rica, Costa Rica. And essentially what we did is we started to actually launching and marketing this before we actually had a product. So in 2017, in January, we started telling people on Souls, or we started telling our friends and family that we were building this community and we were building this travel series. And we actually didn't launch until about June of that year. So from January to June, we actually had acquired about 100 to 150,000 kind of pre, pre kind of subscribers, kind of a wait list type thing. And the ways that we grew was through a couple different mechanisms. One, believe it or not, was cold email. So for us, Instagram was the platform because of its visual. Lots of people were posting about travel. And back then, a lot more people had their email in their bio. So this was people that were influencers. This was people that were micro-influencers. This was people that thought they were influencers that you know maybe had 100 followers, right, and wanted just to connect with others. So we aggregated and kind of sourced the data from Instagram. And we put together like a seed list of about 5 million to 10 million emails based off people posting with hashtag travel, based off people following something like Nat Geo based off people kind of geotagging locations like Bali, Indonesia, right? Really big travel hub. And what we would do is we just send them super personalized emails like, hey, Chase, I saw that you live in Orange County, California. Wanted to let you know about this travel community that we're building. You know, we have X number of other travelers. We'd love for you to join the community, right? Join our Facebook group here, follow our Instagram account there, you know, subscribe to our, our wait list for our newsletter, you know, submit survey on Typeform, right? So we were giving all these people all these different ways to engage. And we'd hit you with one email with one request. 
And if you didn't opt in, we would then hit you a few days later with another email with a different request. So believe it or not, cold email actually helped us acquire about 100,000 to 150,000 subscribers over the course of that 10 months. Yeah, that, that's really impressive. And so the span of three months, things change a lot. So if you were to do that again, and let's say it's like some super niche product, it might have a, a rabid following or not and, and communities. What would your steps be? Is like, is this a replicable strategy right now? And let's take, for example, like, you know, if it were a hot sauce or dog collars or watch bands, you know, something that's, that's maybe more accessible for people who are starting in e-commerce now, like how might the, those tactics change in 2020 post pandemic? Yeah. So, you know, w- with this community that we built, that's really what it was. Like it was a media platform in the community and it's really easy to get people to buy in to a community, right? Cause the cost of admission is nothing, right? The cost of admission is your email. So I think to answer that question in terms of building the travel series again, a lot of the same mechanisms we used before, I think would still work in a lot of ways today. I'll kind of mention a couple of others and then I'll answer the question on the e-com side because I think to some degree, some of that would work and a lot probably wouldn't. But what else we kind of did, the top two or three other channels was we actually acquired Instagram communities. So I was trying to thinking like, do we grow organically or do we acquire accounts? And we kind of did a hybrid. So we bought about four to five different viral travel accounts. You know, these had hundreds of thousands of followers you know, a 16 year old kid on one, you know, someone in another country overseas on one, right? Kind of had all these people and we actually automated the process of this. We were scraping the emails with accounts that had 50,000, 100,000 or more followers. We were sending messages, hey, we'd be interested in partnering with you or buying your account. Are you interested, right? We would send thousands and tens of thousands of these emails. A lot of people overvalued their account, right? They would want tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. But we found like the few people that wanted thousand dollars here, five thousand dollars there. And then we basically wiped off all the content. We completely rebranded these. And we made each account a specific niche. So we ended up between buying and kind of starting, we had about 12 different Instagram accounts based off niches within travel. So we had one for people that wanted to sleep in their van. We had one for people that wanted to sleep in a tent. We had one for people that were luxury travelers, right? We had one for people that were the average traveler. We kind of classified and put people into these buckets. And through kind of organically growing them and buying them, we ended with about 2.2 million total followers on our Instagram network. About 1.4 to 1.5 million of them were actually unique. So that meant, you know, you know, a little less than a million people actually followed more than one account. So I think in a lot of ways, like acquiring Instagram communities and acquiring Facebook communities, I think those work. They're not necessarily like really easy to do or super straightforward. But I think I saw the other day that Warner Music acquired this group of Instagram accounts that are meme accounts for like $85 million, right? So it still seems like something that brands are doing and leveraging. So that's how I think about it. You either build a community, you partner with the community, or you buy a community. And there's no reason you can't do all three. But I think to some degree that would work again for this media site. And that would probably work for e-commerce. I haven't really seen too many people do that on the e-com side though. And then just really quickly to round out kind of the stack and we'll go to the question that you answered. The other really big bucket that we are leveraging was giveaways. Right. So we were able to build the base of people and then we incentivize the people on our list to share with their friends and family. And when they shared with their friends and their family and their friends and their family joined this giveaway, they got more kind of points towards, you know, their entries. Right. So, you know, if you submitted yourself, right, that's one entry. But if you submitted a friend, you shared on social, you could end up with 25, 50, 100 entries to win a free, you know, flight, free hotel, free 
you know, whatever, bread and breakfast, whatever it might be. And I think giveaways have a lot of merit um, in e-commerce if you do them the right way. They're really a massive hit or a miss. If you do giveaways just to do a giveaway and say you sell a hot sauce, but you're giving away, you know, a travel thing, right? The incentive for what people are getting is actually different than what you want them to buy, right? So there's not alignment. However, if you're giving away, you know, a hot sauce and you partnered with other companies that gave away maybe a ketchup, a barbecue sauce, um, maybe some kind of food product, right? Like if you had other people that sold kind of complimentary products and you put together this massive kind of foodie giveaway, I think that might work, right? So a lot of the things I did before would work the same way in some regards for the media site. Um, maybe the scraping might be harder now. Maybe some of the cold email might be a little bit harder, but I think you could get away with it. And then for the product side, yeah, just, just really a toss up. Right. And then also one important footnote that, that you mentioned that's worth repeating is just having certain accounts or having some safety net so that you're not necessarily going with your primary email account, which A, needs to be warmed up and then B, you don't necessarily want to get, get canceled by sending out a lot of spans and, and. Yeah, that's exactly correct. So, you know, for me, I own chasediamond.com. If I was going to set up a sending infrastructure, I would buy like chasediamond.co, chasediamond.net. If someone was to type in the URL, I'd have it automatically redirect to my .com. So that way it looked the exact same. The actual sending domain, you know, the IP, all that would be a completely separate infrastructure. So that way on the .com, that would be for opt-in, right? So the point of the .co, the .net would be to send people to the main site. And then once they opt in to the point that you made, you would then use the main one, but you want to be protective. So you want to have, you know, these throwaway accounts. I never actually burned any domains. I know a lot of people do. I've sent probably tens of millions of cold emails over the years and never burned any, but I always was very precautious and kind of took the necessary steps just because you never know what's going to happen. A lot of these things are out of your control. Right. So getting into the tactics here, I think you mentioned that you use GMAS. Is that right? I've used not another mail merge, which I, I think works, works really well. GMAS is, is probably the recommended tool though that you would go with again. Yeah, for, for me, like it's preference. Like GMAS is kind of hacky looking. It's not as probably great as some of the other ones. Like another one that you're talking about. There's also, you know, a couple, couple others out there. I think one's called like Woodpecker. You know, it's a little bit oh, more right. buttoned up. And then there's another one called Mailshake, I believe is the other popular one. So I think any of these tools do the same thing. It's really just based off preference. For me, I use GMAS early on. So it's the one I always use. But basically what it allows you to do is it allows you to connect um, a G Suite email, right? So just your Google for work email with a Google sheet. So that way you could do a mail merge, right? So you'd have column, like column A would be first name, you know, column B would be email, column C could be title, right? Column, what, you know, it could continue. You basically would just be able to have the personalization within the email. So, you know, GMAS, any of the others did that, but yeah, I, I really liked GMAS. It was, it was cheap, it was affordable. So it allowed us to really scale. Yeah, and then for your follow-ups, would you just basically dedupe your opt-in list with those that are not there? and then just send it again. That's exactly correct. And, and that was a little bit more manual because there wasn't like a direct sure. integration between GMAS or G Suite and then our ESP at the time we were using Campaign Monitor. So we would have like one round go out, let's say on a Monday. And then the following Monday, we'd just do a quick, to your point, we'd take all the people that we were hitting, all the people that opted in, and then we'd have the leftover of, you know, anyone that didn't opt in and we would hit them with a different message. So that part to some degree was a little bit manual, but that was the only way we could do it. 
Yeah, thanks. I, I really enjoyed reading that. And I think you get really tactical and mention all the tools and with a lot of transparency. And I, I saw it on Twitter and I, I think it's great. So you share that with your email list. Highly recommended read. Thank you. Yeah. So another thing that I thought was interesting is basically you're you're saying that for your clients and you have like 40 or more e-commerce brands, you might attribute 40, 30, 40% of your rev of the company's revenue to email, right? So suppose yeah, I'm yeah. sorry, I was gonna say just to clarify, so I'd say on average we're about 20 to 30%, but we have some clients doing, you know, 55 to 60% of their revenue coming from email. And again, obviously we have some lower. I'd say it averages out to be, you know, 20 to 30, 25 to 30% of a brand's revenue coming from email. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so can you just walk me through like what your initial process is in, in auditing and identifying where the opportunities are because, you know, it expands the whole life cycle, customer life cycle from, you know, the introduction of the brand to just driving uh, repeat purchases and abandoned card emails and everything. So how are you taking this whole scope of potential opportunities and then prioritizing? Yeah. So I'm going to kind of walk you through like the, the agency lens. So for me, when I audit, let's say I'm auditing your brand's account, right? For me, I'm looking at like, can I, for the fees that I'm charging, provide value, right? Like my goal is really to be, you know, extremely transparent because I don't want to take on clients that aren't a great fit. There's so many potential business out there. I'd rather take on the one that we know that nine out of 10 times that we could win for versus someone where we're not sure, right? So for me as an agency, the first thing I'm going to look at is what is your total revenue and what is the percentage that's coming from email, right? So typically I'd say most brands that start working with us are doing anywhere from like 0% of the revenue to email all the way up to about 20% is kind of the high end that we see with the average of people probably doing about five to 10% of the revenue from email. So just by seeing that right there, that you know tells me that there's an opportunity to you know, maybe two or three X of brands revenue over the next three to six months. So that, that's the first thing I look at. Then I'm looking at, you know, what is the makeup of revenue between campaigns, right? So a one-time send, think about a product launch or a holiday email versus kind of flows or automations. Think about a band car, a welcome series, things like that. I'm looking at what the makeup is, right? A lot, a lot of times brands are pretty skewed one way or another, right? Where they're really sending a lot of campaigns, but they don't understand the automation side. So there's a lot of opportunity on the automation side. Other time, you know, they're sending out automations because that's easy to set and forget it. And they don't like to do the campaigns because they don't want to come up with one, two, three, four campaigns a week or even a month, right? So I'm kind of looking at the breakdown there. And then within each category, I'm looking at, so stay on the flow side, like what are the flows that they have, right? So there's about nine to 10 core flows I always look to implement first. That's like the welcome series for non-buyers. That's the abandoned cart. That's the abandoned checkout. That's a browse abandonment, right? And then you move over into things like back in stock, site abandonment, and then, so that's, those are mainly kind of pre-purchase. Then you have the post-purchase, right? Which is things like customer, thank you, the customer win back. You've got a breakup series. You've got cross-sells, upsells. You've got review requests, right? So those are kind of the nine or 10 things that I look at. You know, a lot of times clients will have a welcome series, abandoned checkout, and a simple post-purchase, but they're missing a lot of things in between, you know, introducing someone and someone adding to their checkout, right? They're missing a site abandonment. They're missing a browse abandonment. They're missing abandoned cart. Right there, those three flows to me tell me that there's a huge opportunity to add a lot of revenue. So that's kind of a quick glimpse on the flow side. On the campaign side, typically the things that we see in terms of areas of opportunity is A, a brand's not sending enough. Maybe they're sending you know, a few times a month or maybe they're sending once a week, right? We typically like to send 
anywhere between two to four campaigns a week. So that's an opportunity. Other times brands are hitting and leveraging the wrong list. They're sending to everyone on their list versus kind of an engaged segment. So we see an opportunity to kind of come up, come in and clean up who they're sending to. And it's, it's just like this really weird thing that doesn't make sense where most people assume if I hit more people on my list, I'm going to get more opens, more clicks and more revenue. And it goes against the logic, but that's actually not the case. By hitting a slightly smaller list that's more engaged, you actually will get just as many, if not more opens, clicks and revenues. And that's pretty much the hardest thing to explain to someone. So those are the two things on the campaign side that we do. Send more, hit the right list, and obviously write the copy, the creative, that's pretty much the secret sauce. And then lastly, and I'm talking through a lot of this, is we look at the form collection. You know, what's the percentage of emails that we're collecting based off the traffic we have? To say 100 people are coming to our site every day that are not already on our list, a lot of times brands are collecting two, three, four 4% of those into emails. Now, what can we do to get 6%, 8%, 10%, 12%, right? We could test things like the time delay. Instead of showing it immediately, let's try showing it four seconds later. You know, instead of you know, just showing it four seconds later, let's have a completely separate pop-up for someone you know, on X of intent, right? There's all these things that we could do to increase the list size through traffic people already have. So really long-winded, those are kind of some of the things that I look at. So it's one point that I wanted to dig into where I, I can definitely understand I'm, I'm not a brand, but I've, I've been on that side of like having to constantly produce content, creative content, multi, multiple times a week. And it's hard and it's a lot of pressure and, and to continue to do that. So you're saying two to four times per week might be ideal, but then you also say send it to smaller, more engaged audiences. So that two to four times doesn't mean that your list is receiving two to four emails per week, but it's maybe like one creative, but more segmented based on what their interests are. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes and no. So some, sometimes like we might send three campaigns a week to let's say a 60 day engaged segment. And for anyone that doesn't know what that means, that's basically people that have opened or clicked in the last 60 days. Right. So we might hit those people three times and, you know, three emails might be we're in September. Let's see, you know, an email might literally be, we just passed Labor Day. Right. So it might be a Labor Day email, a product launch email and a content email. Right. So the Labor Day email, right, is really geared towards the holiday Ideally, if you have assets geared towards it, great, but it literally could just be, you know, talking about Labor Day and it could have a banner or something and then text and whatever, right? It could be simple. The product launch email, ideally, and hopefully you should have, you know, photography of the new product, right? So you can leverage that content. And if you're sending any education, you know, that could literally be a blog post that you can repurpose, right? So there are ways, and again, I know it sounds daunting. It's a lot for a lot of people, but there are ways to get really creative with, you know, repurposing assets or to the point that you made, right? So maybe we're going to hit men's segment one day and a women's segment the other day. In the men's one, we're going to want to show mainly pictures of men and, and males, but we will want to have some pictures of females. We'll just want to have that lower in the email. So on the female one, right, hopefully we'll have assets of females. We'll have that one higher and then we'll have the same assets that we used for men in the email previously lower, right? So there are ways that you can get around it and get really crafty. And we actually have brands that have terrible assets that we have like a whole formula and strategy for, you know, creating content for them. It's, it's a little bit in depth and intricate, but most companies that we work with request a lot of UGC, right? A lot of stuff on social, a lot of customer review requests. They're incentivizing people to send in photos and videos. So for a brand that doesn't have assets, that's the best thing that you could do is get your customers to create content for you. Right. Any particular tools that you recommend or you like working with that get the best results for that? So, I mean, sometimes we just send like out forms, like whether it's like a Google form or a type form to collect some of this content. 
Other times we'll literally just ask people hit reply to this email and send us the content. Um, other times we'll use like review apps, whether it's like a Shopify plugin, right? Or, you know, something like a Yahoo. There's a bunch of tools depending on people's budgets and depending on people's, you know, you know, te technical capabilities. I don't think there's one tool that I really love more than another, other than maybe Typeform is probably my favorite tool across like collecting product surveys, content, a bunch of other things. I think Typeform probably is the only one that I could say I really like. Interesting. So I wanted to ask you about your segmentation. I saw the presentation that you did with a Klaviyo data scientist and like, I think Klaviyo is doing some really interesting things with the predictive segmentation, like for example, gender based on name, which can get a little bit dicey, but so you explained that maybe you have nine different fundamental automations. How do the segments that you're creating feed into that? Or maybe you can explain how you like to see a, an account break out its segments, both like pre-purchase and post-purchase. Yeah, so I'll talk about segments both on the campaign and the flow side. So on the flow side, it's a little bit more straightforward where, for example, say you have a pop-up on your website, that will be tied to a list that will then feed a welcome series, right? So you enter an email into a pop-up, you know, for 10% off, that then triggers into a list, which then triggers the flow, right? So the welcome series will be triggered off the list of people entering an email, which is the action. You know, an abandoned cart will take the action of someone has started checkout, they're already on your, or sorry, the abandoned checkout will take the trigger of someone's checkout started, started checkout, already on your list, or you've collected them at checkout, and that will trigger the email. Something like the browse abandonment, someone's already on your list, they viewed a product, they haven't added their cart, they haven't started to check out or they haven't purchased, that will trigger a browse abandonment. Um, a customer thank you flow will be triggered based off of someone placing an order. You know, an upsell or cross-sell might be triggered off of someone ordering product A, but not product B. So those are kind of some of the ones like post-purchase or, you know, back in stock, right? Someone subscribes to a back in stock notification. Shopify tells Klaviyo that this item is now back in stock. Klaviyo then triggers an email saying, hey, your t-shirt that you wanted to buy two weeks ago is now available for purchase. So that's kind of the flow side. Those are a little bit more straightforward because they're typically set up based off of an action behavior or an event or a segment. On the campaign side, there's a couple segments that we kind of have to create and we hit. Um, again, the most standard straightforward one is an engaged period. So 30-day engaged, 60-day engaged, 90-day engaged, et cetera. And that's one. The other one that you just talked about is gender. So either we use Klaviyo and Klaviyo's predictive analytics tells us this gender or within a pop-up, maybe someone says that they're a male or a female if you're requesting it, right? The other way that we could do it, and this isn't perfect, is we could look at the items that people have purchased. So if someone has bought, let's say three items from your store and they're all four females, you know, it might be safe to assume that either they really love their life, but more commonly they're probably, you know, female. Or if, you know, if someone's looked at a specific product like multiple times in the same category, right? More likely than not, they're probably one gender, but you can't just assume that. We'll also leverage geography, right? So for clients that sell, let's say apparel, that sell men's, women's, children's apparel, they sell, you know, a hat, a jacket, shorts, flip-flops, t-shirts, tank tops, you know, on, let's say in the spring on the West Coast, we might segment to people and send them, you know, hats, flip-flops, sandals. On the East Coast, we might, you know, while it's still maybe a little bit cooler, we might want to still send them, you know, sweatshirts, beanies, pants, right? So kind of to recap really quickly, it's engaged segments, gender, geo, and then typically depending on what we're looking at, it might be past purchasers, it might be people that have added to their cart but never have bought, we might want to make them a special offer. You know, you might have a VIP segment, so someone that's spent 
you know, $300 in your store over the past six months, someone that's purchased four times in the past year, however you define your VIP. Those are kind of some of the main segments that we're hitting more frequently than not. Right. Do you ever actually ask customers what they're looking for? Like, for example, one of your brand skincare is very popular for this of like getting, you know, zero party data. Hey, what are you looking for? Alia skin, for example, I think is like uh, skin exfoliant, yep. Yep. right? So do you, do you uh, find success with like, hey, what are you looking for or what products are of interest or not? Yes and no. We, we definitely have done that. We, we kind of do it now in a more interesting, kind of more subtle way. And what I mean by that, so in particular within Clavio, I'm assuming that maybe you can, maybe you can't do this in other email platforms, but within Clavio, you can create what's called like a custom tracking link. So essentially based off of what you click, I can then add a custom property to your profile automatically. Um, so for example, let's just use like a product navigation, right? So most people have like a product header that says men's, women's, kids, or sale, right? And you can have a tag for each link that anytime someone clicks on men, it will say, you know, in a campaign, Chase clicked on the category men. Uh, you know, in a campaign, Chase clicked on category sale, right? And I'll add those properties to your profile. So I'll know, great, so you've clicked men's and you've also clicked sale. So now you're interested in men's sales, right? That's kind of how I would prefer it. That's one way. Other things throughout an email, we might ask someone a question like, or we might even tag like a different collections. We might show six collections and we'll have a tag for, you know, warm weather, cool weather, performance, athletic, leisure. And depending on which collections people click, we'll, we'll tag that to their property. And again, you'll, you'll see some of this data, right? If someone goes from the collection, if they view products that they've added to their cart, but this data is really helpful kind of for the top level of if people aren't kind of active and engaged and making it further down your funnel, by collecting this info and this insight, we can then serve them content that will hopefully move them from, great, they've only been on our website and they've only looked at the collection. How can we get them to view specific products in a specific collection? How can we then get them to add those specific products within a collection to their cart? So those are kind of some of the things that we do that are a little bit more subtle to collect some of the data. And we pair that with the other actions that people have taken. Someone's been on our website for for five minutes, someone's come back to our site three times in the past two months, or, or we'll just straight up ask them like, Hey, you know, fill out this survey. We'll give you 10% off your next order. You know, give us, you know, your, your name, your country, your, you know, size, your preference, right? All these types of things. Yeah. So I want to ask you now about like your, your pre-purchased group. They've, and let's say beyond 90 day engaged. So you're like, all right, they've been on it. They haven't really engaged. And earlier you mentioned the term breakup email. And, and I think you were talking about post-purchase, but what's your best practice or what do you like to see in terms of scrubbing your list in order to maintain deliverability and engagement while also balancing the need to convert customers who might not convert within three months, but a year down the line will actually buy something. Yeah, so I've got a couple of thoughts here. So the breakup series, we typically will have a split for uh, one track being a customer and one track being you know not a customer, right? So we'll, we'll kind of do a breakup series for a customer slightly different than we would a breakup series for someone that's never kind of been engaged, never bought. So it, in Clavio, they call it a sunset unengaged flow. It's typically two emails and then a tag. So the, the two emails get triggered based off the segment. And the way that the segment is triggered is you could set up however, but this is how I think about setting it up. If you send, let's say, four or more times per week, you know, every single week, 
you probably want to leverage a more, you know, exclusive kind of segment of let's say a 30 day, 45 day or a 60 day, because you've given people basically every single month, you give them at minimum 12 times to engage over the course of three months. You know, you've given them close to 40 times to engage, maybe even more if you consider any kind of flows they're interacting with. So their likelihood of them ever opening is probably pretty slim if they haven't opened or clicked or purchased. So those people then get put into, you know, this breakup series, right? It basically says, you know, hey, so-and-so, you know, maybe when you sign up for a list, you expected different things. Maybe you didn't expect us to email you as much. Maybe you expected better offers, um, or maybe you just got busy, right? You know, if you want to hear from us, great. If not, you know, no hard feelings, right? So that will be email one. And if they don't open or click, they'll receive then email two. If they don't open or click, they'll then receive basically a tag to their profile that says unengaged equals true. And then every month, every other month, we'll kind of go into the ESP and we'll suppress all the profiles that have that unengaged equals true. By suppressing the profiles, you're paying your ESP less money because you get charged for all your active profiles and suppressing them, you, you don't have to pay for them. I always recommend suppressing versus deleting. They essentially do the same exact thing, but if you delete someone, you lose all the data on them. So if you ever needed to, to look at, back at them in, in the future, or if you ever needed to run a segment of like, how many people in total have purchased this specific SKU, you can't segment people that you've deleted. If you suppress them, you don't pay for them, but their data is still accessible within ESP. And then if you send, you know, let's say once or twice a week or you know, a couple times a month, you could probably get away using a 60 day, 90 day, 120, a 150, a 180, because you've sent people less emails. So say you send once a week, you know, over the course of a month, right? People get four campaigns, maybe they get two other emails. So they get six emails a month. So over the course of, let's say six months, you know, they've really received the same amount of emails that people would otherwise have received in the half the time, half the time if you sent it more. So you want to be a little bit le less exclusive and be more inclusive for these people. Because for example, you know, I have a newborn as uh, she's four and a half months ago. If anyone had sent me emails in the first month or two, I probably wouldn't have opened them, but I've probably opened them now since, right? So again, with those people, you want to drop them in. It's the same kind of flow, but that's kind of typically how we think about, you know, when to start sending people these emails is how frequently they send, the chances people have had to open what actions they have or haven't taken. Right. And once you suppress, you can always reverse that, right? And then that becomes a, a segment in itself. Yeah. I, I know there's certain things like I think of a customer request and you have proof, like you could go and kind of resubscribe them or they could resubscribe. But there are certain things that you could definitely do with the suppressed data. And that's really part of the reason. And, and the other part I didn't mention, so other than just saving the money, you kind of alluded to this by not sending these people, you actually are keeping your account healthier. Um, because Google and all the other, you know, ISPs, the internet service providers, Yahoo, Hotmail, AOL, they're looking at the consistency of sends with the quality, right? So before years back, it used to be people that sent a lot of emails were rewarded. Now it's all about the quality and the consistency of sending to people that want to be receiving these emails. The people that want to receive these emails are the people that are engaging, they're opening, they're clicking, they're forwarding to their friends, they're replying. The people that don't want to receive these emails are marking as spam. They're bouncing, they're unsubscribing. Right. So can we just go to the post-purchase now? And this is really, you know, depending on what the product is, it can be tricky. Sometimes a brand might be acquiring break-even. So it's these repeat purchases, repeat purchases that are really important. But let's assume that it's not a subscription. It might right. be Alia Skin, for example. You know, so it's a one-time purchase. They like it, they, they don't. There's some product education that needs to go into it, I think, in order for them to get the benefit out of the yes. full exfoliation. But 
what does your flow look like? And then how, how are you kind of gearing that towards driving repeat purchases and extending lifetime value with incremental purchases? Yeah. So with, with Ollie skin, they're a, a beauty brand, a skincare brand, right? So that would fall under like a consumable or topical topical, which we treat a little bit differently than other things. The reason that we treat these people differently is the repeat purchase potential is there, right? With skincare, you know, you might need to repurchase every four to six weeks, right? So we really leverage that timeline to our advantage. And obviously, right, the client would give us the exact data of, you know, product A is consumed in two weeks, right? Product B is consumed in four weeks, product C is, right? We kind of would take an average and, you know, we might split it based off product. But the very first thing that we would do is send people a customer thank you. And again, this is, I'm not going to go through the transactional emails. People are going to receive their their order confirmation, they're going to receive their shipping confirmation, they're going to receive their products delivered, right? Those are all the transactional emails. I'm going to talk about the emails that you actually can control and, and should be building. A lot of those other emails are built pretty easily within Shopify. They're all kind of set up already, but we'll hit people with a customer thank you, right? The very first thing you have to do is thank your customers for purchasing from you. You want to have a split based off a first customer versus a repeat customer. You want to talk to them similarly, but different. You know, the person that buys from you once, you want to kind of give them a little bit more you know, information and let them know what it did, right? Customer that's bought again, you want to be, you know, expressive of thanks so much for the repeat purchase. It means a lot to us, right? So we'll split kind of the fork for first time versus repeat. Then from, from there, you know, with Alia Skin, for example, we'll want to educate people either as a product is being shipped or as soon as someone gets it about how to use it. Teaching people how to use consumables or topicals is the best thing for actually people following the regimen of using this in four, four weeks, right? Versus eight weeks or 10 weeks or 12 weeks. So with them, right, it might be, Hey, every night when you shower, every time you wash your face, make sure to apply this, you know, pink clay, you know, before or after use it daily, you know, best results are combined with using our other product, right? You, you always see those on the packaging. Those are obviously it's marketing. It's so people consume it properly. So that, that's an email that we'll send. I was just educating people about the product and whatnot. You know, after a couple people, after people have had a chance to kind of use the product for like a week or two, we'll kind of check in, see if anyone has any questions. And then we'll typically follow it up with a customer review request. And then from there, right, that's typically been about the time that people are going to probably have to reorder. So we'll hit someone with a series called a replenishment reminder. Basically, it will hit you up, you know, a few days before you're probably going to need to order, reminding you to order. So that way you don't have to go any days without the product. So that email will be sent. If you purchase, great. If you don't purchase, we'll send you another email a few days later, maybe a week later saying, hey, by this time now, if you're not out, already you're about to be out, right? Make sure you repurchase and here's 10% off to, to rebuy, right? So we'll kind of hit people with two or three of those emails and what's called the replenishment reminder. And then from there, if there's other products that are complementary to that. So if someone bought, let's say a shampoo and they didn't buy the conditioner, we'll then look to say, hey, all these people bought the shampoo, they didn't buy the conditioner. Hey, now that you've been with us for five weeks, you know how great our shampoo is. We also wanted to introduce to you our conditioner. These are best used when combined together, right? So those are kind of the flow, you know, we'll kind of hit people with campaigns in between. Well, then if they haven't purchased at all, hit them with a customer win back, right? And then we'll keep trying to hit people with these content um, and whatnot. Is that, is that helpful? Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah, totally. And I can actually like think about this visually, you know, in, in like a campaign build out, it, it totally makes sense. And you have different nodes of like, if, or actually, yes. so yeah, thank you. That, that does make a lot of sense. Do you go back though? Like for example, right after the purchase is super important, whether they actually start using this habitually, do you track whether they open an email or not and then resend a product education email if they don't open it? 
So there's definitely emails that we do that for. So for example, like going back to the welcome series for non-buyers, traditionally email one in that sequence of let's say three, four, five emails, email one to traditionally has the highest engagement and the highest revenue. And typically the most important email because someone's looking for a discount code. So absolutely we'll take that email. We'll basically set something up to automatically resend that to all non-openers 24 hours later, and then we'll re-push them back into emails two, three, four, and five. For certain emails post-purchase, right? Like say for whatever reason, one of our clients is on Shopify Plus and an order confirmation or shipping confirmation, which I mentioned we were going to talk about, is sent from, from Clavio. We will probably want to resend an email like that just because we need to make sure that people actually receive that email. Traditionally, right, those emails are already getting 60, 70, 80% plus open rates. So probably don't necessarily need to, but it, for whatever reason, those emails were kind of slouching or kind of underperforming, we would. A product education email, yeah, we, we, we would probably try to resend something like that again if we know that that email, if we could tie that email into the performance for a product like that, we probably would. If not, in other emails, we might just have something at the very bottom like, hey, P.S., not sure if you read our last email, but make sure you, know, you use products X, Y, and Z like this. And we could always hyperlink out to like a blog post. So that's another kind of way that we've gone about it is they'll have this info readily available on their website. So we'll kind of just lightly mention it in other emails if we don't really want to resend it. Right. That's great. So wrapping up, Chase, thank you so much. This is really insightful and actionable. Who do you think right now out of direct-to-consumer brands is doing the best job with email and why? Can I be biased? Like, can I quit? Yeah, 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 of course. Absolutely. Okay. So one of our clients is a brand called Nugs. I don't know if you've seen uh, the websites Eat Nugs. I, I really think, again, I, I can't really take any credit for it. It's a lot of my team and, and mainly their team. They have just such incredible assets and they've got such a cult-like following that no matter what we build and what we do, every email makes us look fantastic. So I think Nugs, which is eatnugs, um, N-U-G-G-S.com, .com, the emails that we create for them are hilarious. They convert, they're amazing looking. So if I'm being biased, that's probably my favorite brand that we work sure. with as a client. Is it chicken um, nuggets? It's, it's a chicken nugget alternative it's almost like so it looks like a chicken nugget it kind of tastes like a chicken nugget but it's not a chicken nugget it's like a they call themselves the tesla of chicken and it's like a chicken nugget kind of simulation it's it's, it's interesting i don't actually really even know okay. i think it's healthier more like vegan plant-based i don't know all the ingredients my team handles all that but the, the branding there is so cool they have some of the best we don't do any of their ads but they have some of the best ads i've ever seen they've got some great stuff going on to so eat nuts is a biased one because that's one that we work with non-biased ones i've got a couple i think chubby's does a great job just because they're so out there and funny with everything they do from like the from name every single day is different they're so funny and comedic in their email and that's so on brand for them so i think chubby's does a fantastic job i think brooklinen which is like the sheets and kind of the bedding company does a fantastic job um, i mean I, I could keep going but i think those are probably like my top three right now you know magic spoon the cereal company right like I've, I've got a whole list so if anyone's listening to this or watching this and wants like a list of, of brands, I'd be happy to send you some of the ones I follow. Yeah, I, I do like Chubby's and, and it is a very distinctive voice. And it's probably, you know, maybe we're in the demographic that they're targeting. Yes. Definitely you in Southern California. Yeah. Right. Jay, so what's the best way to get in touch with you online? Uh, Twitter. So my, my handle is Ecom Chase Diamond and there's no A in Diamond. So it's D-I-M-O-N-D. So Ecom Chase Diamond, uh, Twitter is the best way. So Anyone has any questions, drop me a DM and I'll, I'll happily respond. That's right. So Chase Diamond from boundlesslabs.co as well, right? Uh, actually, we're .io. 
Balasat.io. I'm sorry, .io. Okay. All right. Chase, thank you so much. That was fantastic. I really appreciate thank you the insight. And that's the episode for today. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. We love you for it. If you found anything valuable at all or want to share your feedback, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also just drop us a line, hello at cartoverflow.com. We'd love to hear your feedback or suggestions so we can cover it in a future episode. All right, see you next time.